Hi, everybody, and welcome to Unified, a podcast feed from First Church Belmont Unitarian Universalist. We'll be sharing sermons and stories, especially thematic content made new every week. We're so glad you're here, and for more information about who we are and opportunities to grow and deepen, swing by the church on Sundays or check out our website at uubelmont.org. And for now, enjoy this new content. So today in our service and all fall, we'll be talking about heritage and we'll be hearing stories of people who I like to say, whose fingerprints we bear on our hearts. You know, the people who have shaped us, the people who are part of who we are now and who we hope to be. And so we'll be hearing from uh, all of the music staff, which is awesome. (laughs) And we've had a bunch of opportunity. We've heard stories from lots of other people. But I wanted to start by telling you about a stool that I had, that I grew up with, which was exactly the right size to hide two small stuffies or one big stuffy. It was exactly the right size to play as a fort with my G.I. Joe guys. It was about this tall and about that wide. And it was all painted black. But it had a bunch of multicolored flowers that were painted on it also. And it was super rickety. Strong, but rickety in a way that you knew that it had a story. But I didn't know the story of this stool until just a couple years ago, really. And you see, my mother got this stool from her grandmother. But it goes even back farther than that because her grandfather had married a woman who was very overwhelmed by housework. And she painted every piece of furniture in her house black so it would show dirt less. Which I respect on some... (laughs) As a not super enthusiastic cleaner, I get the impulse of that. But as you can imagine, my mother, when she was little, younger than you, she would go to that house and it felt sad. Because all the furniture had been painted black, so the house felt really dark. And that grandmother died, sadly. But her grandfather married another woman who my mother loved more than anybody else in her childhood. She was warm and round and scooped my mother up and gave her the biggest, most wonderful hugs she had in her entire childhood. Those moments of love filled her. And this woman moved into this house with all of this furniture that had been painted black, and she bought a bunch of multicolored paints. And on every piece of that black furniture, she painted vines growing up around them. She painted rainbow-colored flowers all on top of them. And so I have that little stool. And that legacy of wanting to make things beautiful is very much alive in me now. And I love making art with all of my children. And I think of a lot of what I do as receiving wonderful things, but then hopefully making them more beautiful and passing them on to generations to come. Amen. My name is Ian Garvey, and I'm going to tell you a story this morning about my grandparents. 
My mother's parents were born in Germany, and they met each other in Scotland after both had fled Germany after World War II. And there, they met a man named Karl Koenig. Karl Koenig was a disciple, a follower of Rudolf Steiner, who was a philosopher who started the Anthroposophy movement. And Karl Koenig and a number of people there started what would become the Camp Hill Village movement in this world. The first Camp Hill Village was in the village of Newton Dee, just north of Aberdeen in Scotland. And the Camp Hill Villages are cooperative living spaces centered around biodynamic organic farms for mentally and physically disabled adults. And at the time, this was a completely revolutionary thing. Disabled adults and families who were caring for them often had the only option of institutionalization, which at the time was not a very nice thing. Um, and this provided a living environment that allowed the disabled adults to flourish. They, would, they could contribute their skills to the best of their ability to the farms, to the gardens, to the livestock, and all the other activities that grew up around the farms. So my grandparents, both realizing what good work this was, committed to traveling to the US to start the first Camp Hill Village here. And along with five children and three other adults, they moved to Copake, New York, where they started the first Camp Hill Village in this country. And that's where my mother grew up, surrounded by mentally and physically disabled adults who were working on a farm, tending cattle, who were caring for the herb and tea garden where many, many different kinds of herbs and teas were packaged and sold, in the bakery where cookies and breads and granola were baked on a daily basis, and my personal favorite in the instrument making shop where they would hand carve harps and flutes and recorders, also for sale, but also to be played. It was rare that you found any sort of, any household, any gathering there at the village that didn't have handmade instruments being played. The other thing to contextualize this is this was in the US, this was during the 50s and 60s where the eugenics movement was relatively strong and not only institutionalization but often forced sterilization were the options that family ha families had to um, care for the members of their family who had a disability. But what I learned just a couple weeks ago, which really struck me, is that the history in my family of this kind of work and caring for and providing a, a living environment, a positive and wholesome living environment for disabled adults goes back much further. Because I learned just two weeks ago that my grandfather's grandfather, in the time in the late 1800s before World War I, his family came from minor German nobility, and they had large family estates on the banks of the Yeza River. And he opened his doors and his lands to families that had disabled children and adults, because as he said, apparently, he didn't need the income, and they needed the place. They needed the space to grow and to live. So that family legacy has stayed with me, and I, I really like thinking back on that, because 
faults though they had, that was one thing that they really contributed in a wonderful way to the world. And I, think, I like to think in some small part that I continue a little bit of that here, trying to create a music program that is open to everyone, that is welcoming to everyone, regardless of disability or any other needs they may have. Everyone is welcome. Thank you. Hi, my name is Camila Parias. Um, my story is about an art book that I received once from my favorite person, which was my grandmother, my mom's mom. Uh, she was American. She was born in upstate New York. And um, I was not an easy teenager. I really gave a hard time to my mom. Um, I was passed, I passed through like three high schools and I just wanted to do music and I kept begging her to just let me do it and I will do like the exams and graduate very easily and there was no way I was going to be able to do that. Um, so I kept failing a lot of uh, different courses like math and history and uh, science because I was just really not interested. Um, but um, my grandmother was uh, the center of everything. She loved to cook. She learned, uh, she was able to go to uh, university and she studied uh, literature and history and she was just, you always found her with like three books uh, of all kinds of, of topics and uh, she, trying to help my mom, she was okay, well, what can we do for her? How can we make this happen and not be like a bigger problem? And she said, well, I can't teach her uh, like English, you know, because I, you know, I know it, I don't know the grammar and stuff, but like I can definitely try and, and help her with history. So one day she sat with me and uh, we started talking, like, okay, what, what are you learning in school? And I, you know, I told her, like, well, feudalism and renaissance and all that stuff. And she uh, had this beautiful library in her house, and she sat with me, and she started browsing it and looking for art books, and she she started, like, showing me all the stories through paintings of Bosch and other uh, painters. And somehow I just got, you know, that connection between the arts and the music and all that really clicked in my brain. And I, I had this moment with her that I cherish because until this day, I remember what she taught me that day. And it, it just, and at the end of the day, she was, I mean, probably she just saw, like, oh, my God, she got interested. Like, I, I got into her, <laughs> finally. And she wrote me this, this, this kind of, like, love letter in the book. And she said, when I die, this book is going to be yours. So I have it now. There you go. <laughs> My parents both left school at the age of 16. In 1950s England, that fact alone is enough to tell you that they were working class. My mother's father had left school at 14 and went to work at the local gas works in short trousers, but that's a story for another day. 
In class-conscious 1950s England, one spoken sentence was enough to place you both geographically and, more importantly, socially. Your accents and your vocabulary defined you, and while these class lines may have been invisible, they were omnipresent and immutable. So, when my mother started working at the age of 16, she realized very quickly that the way she spoke would bar her from many jobs, certainly the better paying ones. Therefore, she determined to change it, practicing every evening at home, trying to sound like a BBC announcer. <laughs> she developed the reputation for being a deep thinker because she would always pause before answering a question. <laughs> What her co-workers didn't know was that she wasn't wondering what to say, but how it would sound in her new accent. When they married, my father followed her lead wisely throughout their marriage. <laughs> it is only recently that I have started wondering if I have unconsciously tried to keep my English accent in spite of living in the States for almost 37 years, precisely because how hard my parents had worked to acquire theirs. My father worked in non-residential construction, mainly farm buildings. If my mother was working during the school holidays, my brother and I would sometimes spend the day with him driving around the countryside visiting building sites. One day, I must have been seven or eight, we drove past a series of plush green lawns that seemed to reach out as far as the eye could see with edged with gothic ivy-covered buildings. What's that place, Dad? I asked him. I remember his reply to this day. That's where rich people send their sons to go to school. Don't get your hopes up, it's not for people like us. As time went by, I showed some musical ability and won a scholarship to become a chorister at Chichester Cathedral, which required living away from home. Private school. Mingling with the upper class. I suspect that my socialist grandfather, the one that went to work in, long, in short trousers, thought my parents were class traitors. But on another, he respected that my parents were determined that I would have more opportunities than they had had. Even with the scholarship, money was very tight, and I remember parents' weekends at school being very difficult when my friends' families turned up in Bentleys and Jaguars and stayed in expensive hotels while I knew my parents had packed a tent my, my mother had borrowed from a friend in the back of their second-hand car and pulled up in a field a couple of miles out of town. I think my favorite memory from one of those parents' weekends was when one of the other parents asked my father, in his plummiest tones, oh, we're at the Anchor Hotel, where are you staying? <laughs> Far from leaving an embarrassed silence, without missing a beat, my father replied, oh, we're out in the country somewhere. I don't remember the name. My wife made the arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where I got it from. When my, when my voice changed and it was time to go to high school, my parents made another bold and, for me, life-changing choice. Rightly or wrongly, they thought I would get a better musical training continuing in the private school system rather than the local grammar school. Since they had obviously no first-hand experience of that system, they asked my piano teacher for advice. In the sort of coincidence that only happens in Hallmark made-for-TV movies, his first choice was the very school whose green lawns my father had told me were not for people like us. I won a scholarship and had four wonderful music-filled years there. My teachers and other subjects were say overfilled with music. 
I went on to study at Oxford and eventually, after a gap of many years, obtained a PhD at the University of California at Berkeley. To help pay my way through graduate school, I was actually director of music at the Berkeley Church for three years. In her late 40s, my mother went back and finished high school, sitting in the same class as my brother, retrained as a mathematics teacher and had a 25-year career as a mathematics teacher at high school. Looking back on it, while my life has always been determined by my love of music, in many ways it has been equally shaped by the gradual and often, often resisted breakdown of the English class system. From the time of my mother's assumption of a BBC accent in the 1950s to mask as much as possible her working class background, to my freshman year at Oxford in 1977, and that was, I believe, the first intake to include more people from state schools than from private schools. Many things have changed in the UK, mostly for the better. Had I been born even 20 years earlier, my life would have been quite different. But I'm also aware that, on both sides of the pond, there are too many people who haven't experienced the loosening of the grip of rigid social structures that I have. It seems to me that it is my task to realize that I am not the pinnacle of what progress has been made, but only the crest of a very small slope on a much, much larger mountain. In a time of ladder pulling, when advocates of a certain politi political philosophy deny people the rights they have demanded for themselves, I want to join the ladder builders. 